thank you, David. I always look forward to the children's sermon. Good job, thank you. <clears throat> so David has done a very good job of giving you a short summary of the events that took place here in First Chronicles 21. Um, David's heart for most of his life was right with God. But on this particular occasion... There was something that was motivating him inside. Um, the tendency is to look around at our successes and start thinking how great we are. And we look around and we think, uh, you know, I'm a pretty good guy here. And this sort of thing builds up. David, because God had been with him and God was faithful, God had given him all of these things even gave him the abilities and the talents that he had to do things. All of these are gifts from God. David in his pride wants to number the men. Well, why does he want to number the men? Uh, later on, other kings are going to have a similar experience, but their experience is once they know that they've got this mass of men behind them, what do they need God for? And so the tendency is when you focus on what we have, our resources or our abilities or whatever, we begin to focus on them and think, uh, why should I pray? Why should I give God anything? But our very life itself is a gift. And so there were other things that were going on that the scripture doesn't tell us about. But as an act of judgment on the nation and on David, he had these three options and David set them out clearly. And he chose to fall into the hand of God. So for three days, this plague was ravishing across the country. 70,000 men died. A large number of people were dying. And David, as the king of the country, he's looking out and he's seeing the devastation. 70,000 men, that's 70,000 homes. 70,000 families, if you want to look at it, in this country. And David looks out and he knows, that's my fault. I caused that. And so that's the issue that's taking place. So the thing about the uh, sacrifice, I think, is extremely, extremely important. So uh, let's see, let's see. Today's Sunday, right? And, and one of the things we're supposed to do, part of our worship, is to, to make an offering, give sacrifice to God. Just acknowledging of Him and acknowledging that everything that we have comes from him. So, um, uh, so I, I need to... Uh, Mark, give me 20 bucks. And so I'll, I'll take his 20 bucks and say, here's my offering, Lord. Put it in the collection. So it hasn't cost me anything. It's cost Mark, but he's not obligated to God for what I am and what I do. And this is the issue here with David. This man was a Jebusite, uh, Ornan or Arunath. He's uh, got two different names depending on whether you're reading Samuel or Chronicles. But it's the same guy. He's a Jebusite. He's not even Jewish. 
He's not even a Hebrew. He's a Gibeonite, one of the Canaanite tribes that have been de defeated and destroyed. And so he's uh, a minority subject person. And he's got his stuff over here, his farm and everything, and he's out, he and his sons. And uh, not only David saw the angel, but this guy and his sons saw the angel as well. So you're out here working in your field, doing the things you always do, your everyday job, and you look up and all of a sudden here's an angel and he's got a sword in his hand and people are dying everywhere and he's coming towards you. Uh, it would make you stop and think. <laughs> and so those are the issues that's going on here. And God is working. He's working in the heart of David, but he's also working in the heart and lives of the people around him. And this man is making a very great offer to David. Um, God is the one who told David, you need to go there and offer a burnt offering. So a burnt offering later came to mean something that uh, it's a sacrifice. It's a gift for worship and thanksgiving. That's what it came to be. But earlier, before that, a burnt offering was for atonement and forgiveness of the soul. And so God is telling David, you need to go and make a sin offering, basically, this burnt offering. It's the same thing that God told Abraham uh, many years before when he told him to offer up his son Isaac. He said, I want you to offer up your son Isaac as a burnt offering. So it's that kind of a thing that's going on here. It's a sacrifice, something that's consecrated and offered to God, a present as an act of worship. It's an acknowledgement of God and it's acknowledgement of who we are and what's going on in our life. So how do we determine what is the value of something? What do we mean when we talk about value? When we talk about value, we're talking about uh, estimated or assessed worth. It means to hold something in high esteem. It means to prize something. And so David, as he's coming before God here, he is valuing um, his relationship with God and his heart of suffering for the people that he brought upon himself. And because he values God and he values the extent of his sin, he understands the cost of what his sin did to other people. And we need to be really clear on this. There is no such thing as private, personal sin. Every, every sin has consequences beyond yourself. Even if it's only a, a thought in your mind, it has consequences of, on people around us. It affects how we look at ourselves. It affects how we look at other people. And that affects how we act and how we treat one another. David understands that part. And so he's looking here at the value of his relationship. One of the things that um, the Old Testament talks about is it talks about restitution. So when we're looking at value, we're looking at what we're willing to give up in order to have. Even if we're talking about personal relationships, how you value the other person. If you value the other person, it means you're putting that other person's uh, their desires, their needs before your own. If not, 
it's more self-love than love for the other person, right? There's a difference between love and manipulation. There's a difference between love and controlling the other person to get them to do what you want. Uh, that has nothing to do with love. Uh, love is in service and giving. Selfishness is everything of, is about me. And our whole society and culture is based on selfishness, greed, materialism. And God's excluded from all of those. And so David is understanding that. So he's valuing this. And as he comes, when he's offering to make this offering, what he's doing is he is acknowledging his sin. He's taking ownership, responsibility for his actions and his choices. And he's acknowledging publicly and openly, you people are suffering because of my sin. It's an incredible thing for a king to do. In his society and culture, and in the, all the surrounding cultures around him, the king never made mistakes. And if you read the, uh, the political historical journals of all the surrounding cultures, uh, there are no defeats listed for any of their kings, only the victories. Only the victories, never the defeats. Because the king is the king. He doesn't do anything wrong. He does whatever he feels like doing. Because their kings were almost godlike, and some of them demanded to be worshipped as gods. David's a very different man. He's a man after God's own heart, and he never confuses God with himself. And that's what we do oftentimes. We play God by wanting to use people for our benefit. We're playing God. When we're judging and condemning and accusing others, we're playing God. David's coming before God and he's saying, no, it's my fault. Uh, I am responsible. So the Old Testament comes up with a, a way to deal with this to a degree. It's called restitution. Restitution is you try in as far as possible to restore anything to its rightful owner or its equivalent for loss or damage. So if you're a thief and you've stolen something, then you've got to give it back or at least something of equal or greater value. Um, and so you try to, to work this out. This is, part, this is what um, law and justice is based on. Restitution, making amends for what we ourselves have deliberately, willfully done. And it affects other people. And if it's a thing where we cannot replace what we've taken, then we do the best that we can to give some kind of, a, of, a, of an equivalent to that restitution. So... Along those lines, just to throw this out here, um, the Scriptures repeats it about uh, at least three times in the Old Testament. And it talks about uh, justice. And the thing about justice is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, limb for limb, life for life. And that's been abused and parodied in the media and all that kind of stuff. But it's a very valuable concept that we have lost in this country. Restitution. And what it's saying is that, it, number one, it limits vengeance. If someone has broken your leg, it doesn't mean that you have the right to take their life. It limits vengeance. It also limits uh, punishment. The punishment can't be worse than the crime that was committed. So they have it in countries like um, Turkey. If you're a thief, you better be really careful because if you steal something, the penalty is they will cut off your hand 
And so they have very little problem with theft in that country. And I don't know how it is now, but a few years ago, you could be walking down the road and you could have a wallet full of money. And if you dropped it on the sidewalk and you left and several hours later, missed your wallet and you're retracing your trap, it's going to be right there. So it's that kind of a thing. So the idea is that the punishment cannot exceed the crime. And the other thing is that it's taking a, a consistent value to property and to people. Consistent value. Uh, something that's worth something. Restitution is an acknowledgement of that. So how does that fit in with the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Um, we're talking about value. What are we willing to, to give up in order to possess? Then we have the, the parables that Jesus told. There was a man who went searching and he was looking and he found a great treasure hidden in a field. And so immediately he goes and what does it say? He sold everything he had. What was the cost? Everything he had and he went and bought that field. Again, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a, a, a pearl merchant. And he searches around the world and he finds this pearl. It's exquisite pearl of great price. And with joy, he went and sold everything he had and bought that thing. With joy. Was it a sacrifice? Was he, oh no, I've got to give up this. No, he was saying, look at what I've got. It's the pearl of great price. And it's worth everything that I have because its value is greater. Oftentimes we look at the relationship that we have with God and we look around and we're saying, well, I don't want to follow the Lord. He's going to ask me to give up something. <laughs> or he's going to take away something that I enjoy or, or my future or my, my hopes or, you know. And we don't realize it's worth far, far more than all of our small ideas, all of our small ambitions, all of our small plans. We're dealing with the God of the universe who wants us to know him and enter into the fullness of why he created us to begin with. So what does it cost? Cost everything. What do we receive in return? Everything. The everything that we give is the everything that we have. The everything we receive is everything God is. It's worth the cost. It's not even worth comparing to it. This is what the rich young ruler did not understand. Um, so often in our society and culture, we think in terms of money or monetary things or possessions, you know. And if there's a problem, then we just throw a little money at it and it doesn't cost us anything as far as time or effort or, or responsibility or accountability. And it's more than that. It's a whole lot more. It's what we value is where we spend our time. You remember we were talking about fasting a couple weeks ago. We read the, the verses in Zechariah. And they were saying, well, you know, shall we keep continuing these fasts, fastings? And God says, well, when you do your fasting, is it really for me that you're fasting? Or is it because I need to lose weight? Or it's healthier? Or, you know, it, you know we have all these different um, ideas about fasting. And... Nothing wrong with those things. But if we're going to present it to God, it needs to be for the right reason. 
um, so that we can hear, so that we can open up our hearts, get rid of the distractions of our lives so that we are, are more open to his word. He said, when you're feasting, because there's feast days, um, I think about Thanksgiving, Christmas, you know, the, the big holidays when families get together and we all eat. And he says, when you were feasting, was it not just for yourselves that you're feasting? So we get together and do all these things and forget about God, forget about the reason for the season and the purpose behind what we're celebrating here. And we focus on the food and the sports and the family and all of those, and none of those things are wrong in themselves. But when they become the focal point, then we've taken away the whole reason uh, for, the, for the celebration. And it's the same thing with Easter. Um, the focal point of Easter is the sacrifice of, of God for our sins. So these were some of the things that were going on here with David. Um, David had prayed earlier in Psalm 19.13. He had, he had asked that God would search him and know him and that God would deliver him from willful sins. That's presumptuous sins. And David, in numbering the people, had committed a willful, presumptuous sin against God. And so it's a calling attention to himself and a denial and a rejection of everything that God had done for him. And so God is saying, okay, there needs to be um, an act of worship here to deal with these kinds of things. And so he tells him where to go. And so he goes and he sees this angel with his sword stretched out. And David sees it. Aruna sees it. And Aruna says, look, uh, as David was telling us, it's a gift. I will give it to you. It's a national crisis we're facing here. I will give you this. Take it and make the sacrifice. And David understood it's not the sacrifice itself that's the important thing here. It's what's going on in your heart and what's going on in your relationship with God. Because... That's the thing, that's the critical issue here. It's not the amount, it's not the kind, it's your obedience and your relationship with God. Now this is what was going on again. It was at this same spot that years earlier that God had led Abraham to to offer up Isaac. It's the same spot, that spot right there. It's where they, uh, Abraham had been called to offer up his son as a burnt offering. It's what David is going to offer up a burnt offering here to God. Later on, Solomon's going to build, as David reminded us, the temple there, and that's going to be the altar of sacrifice for sin. Right there, that same spot. As burnt offerings are located in that same spot. It's a place chosen by God. Um, the idea of the sacrifice wasn't David's. The choice of location wasn't David's. What he was going to offer wasn't up to David. It was up to God. And so God says, how much do you value your relationship with me, Abraham? Do you value it more than your son? Your only son, who's the child of promise, a promise of God. Are you going to obey God or not? Do you value your relationship with him? And Abraham was going to do it. 
And he had told Isaac when Isaac had asked him about the sacrifice, Abraham made a prophetic statement. And he said, God himself will provide the sacrifice. Guess what? It's you. <laughs> so it's one thing um, when God begins to speak that way. It's another thing to take him seriously and say, okay. Isaac was a young man. Abraham was an old, old man. If he wanted to run away, there's no way Abraham would have been able to catch him. If he wanted to struggle with him, was in any way Abraham was going to be able to overcome his young, fit son. Isaac submitted to his father and to God. He becomes a type of Christ who in the Garden of Gethsemane says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to the cross for you and for me. God was wanting Abraham to understand um, what the value of his sin was, what the value of his relationship with God was. And so when God speaks to us, he asks for the very best that we have. Anything less is an insult to God. It's an insult. David understood that. Later on, Micah is going to, to address the same question in Micah chapter 6. Because the people misunderstood and they were getting involved with sacrificing their children to idols, to demonic spirits. And so he asks the question, Micah does, in chapter 6, starting with verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? What kind of sacrifice? What kind of offering? What kind of worship? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Because that's what people were thinking, and that's what they were doing. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. So, for David, if he had heard this, this is much, many hundreds of years after David, but if he had heard this, he would have understood. What is it that God requires? Justice, mercy, and humility. Acknowledging God and walking with Him. Going God's way and not your own way. Glorifying Him in all that we do and say. So as Christians, we come before the Lord and David understood, I'm not going to offer to God that which costs me nothing. It would devalue God, it would devalue the, the gift, and it would devalue me. And so it's between a relationship with God and understanding Him. I insist on paying for you the full price, he told Aruna, and he did. David paid him. I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. He understood the value that was taking place here. He understood what God was doing within his heart and within his life, and he valued that relationship. In Matthew chapter 16, 
Jesus is alone with his disciples. They're on a retreat. And they've had tremendous miracles taking place. And now John the Baptist had recently been executed. He had been their spiritual father for, the, um, um, for several of the disciples. And he had been a close friend and a cousin of Jesus. And now he had been executed. And so um, there was grief and there was loss. And they were tired because of the ministry and the pressures that were going on around them. So they'd gone off on a retreat. And Jesus started talking with the disciples there by the Caesarea Philippi. It's the, it's the mouth of the Jordan River. It's a very beautiful place. There's a, a spring of fresh water. That's the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's right there. And so they were there at this beautiful place. And Jesus started asking them, uh, who do people say that I am? And they had some good answers. They think you're uh, one of the prophets. Uh, think you're a great man of God and all these. And, and Jesus said, well, okay. Uh, what about you? These were the men who had left everything and knew him best. What about you? What do you think? And Peter, because God himself had revealed it to him, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus praised him. He said, you are blessed, not because you figured it out, not because you're such a deep spiritual or, or intellectual person, not because you're such a good guy. You are blessed because God chose to reveal that to you. This doesn't come from him, from Peter. It came from God. And just a few verses later, immediately, Jesus begins to talk to them about the cross. He hadn't talked to them about it before. This is the first time the subject of the cross came up. Once they realized who he was, Jesus is telling them, this is why I'm here. I've come to die. I've come to die for you and for everybody else. Your friends, your family, your enemies, the people who have hurt you, the people who have taken advantage of you. Jesus says, I'm coming to die for them as well. Peter didn't like that. And so he began to rebuke Jesus. Peter, rebuking Jesus. Lord, never happened. This will never happen to you. And this man who had just received this tremendous revelation of God in the flesh Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, you're thinking selfishly again about yourself. You're not thinking about God. You're not thinking about God's plans and purposes. It's all very selfish. I like you. You're my friend. I don't want you to, to hurt. I don't want you to suffer. I, that's not going to happen. I won't let it happen. It's not up to you, Peter. Well, so what does that have to do with you and me? Well, I wish Jesus would have stopped just talking with Peter, you know. I, I would be comfortable with that. Then Jesus said to his disciples, all of them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself or herself, take up his or her cross, and follow me. So Jesus comes and he says, I'm here to die. They're going to crucify me. If you're going to be my disciple, if you want to walk with me, that's where it's going to end. So if you want to walk with me, you're going to die too. And if you don't, you can't walk with me. Pretty tough. No prosperity gospel here. No, God's going to bless you 
And so you give so that you can receive more. You know, that's a very selfish, materialistic, self-centered. It's a heresy. It's a lie. Jesus said, if you're going to walk with me, it's going to involve a cross. You're going to have to die to yourself. It's going to cost you this pearl of great price. Everything. Everything. Everything means all. No exceptions. So because he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. It's, it's like trying to grasp oil. You know? It, you can't. You can't grasp oil. So that if you try to grasp life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ, you will find it. This is why uh, what's taking place in the world today is the death knell of Islam. Because the more they crucify and chop the heads off and persecute Christians, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And they're going to find themselves fighting against God. He's the God, when Peter draws out the sword and chops off the high servant's ear, Jesus says, you got the wrong kingdom here. You need to put away your sword. And then Jesus went and healed the man's ear who was going to take him to be tried and crucified. That's the God that we serve. The God who heals the enemy that's going to kill you. That's the God that we serve. That's the power of the cross. It transforms people's lives. And Jesus is giving us an opportunity to follow him. Now it's interesting that uh, when Jesus first called Peter, he was by the Sea of Galilee, he was fishing, and Jesus called him to leave his job and to come follow him. And Peter did. Then after Gethsemane, once Jesus had arrested, had been arrested, Peter, along with all the other disciples, fled. And you remember that Peter denies that he knows Jesus, swears with an oath, calls down curses on himself. I never knew this man. Where a couple of hours before, everybody else may leave. I won't. If it costs me my life, I will lay it down at your feet, Lord. And when it came to the test, he was willing to fight and die for the Lord. But when he told him to put away his sword, he did not know what to do. And so the invitation was there. You walk with me as we go to the trial. And Peter said, I can't do that. And at the trial, the third time, Peter denied him and the rooster crowed. Jesus bound in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter outside, warming himself by the fire, swearing that he never ever knew Jesus. All Jesus did was look at him. And it broke Peter's heart. He went out and wept bitterly. And that's the last time that, Jesus, that Peter saw Jesus until after the resurrection. And so resurrection was good news, bad news for Peter. <laughs> you know, he's glad that the Lord had been risen. But man, the last time he saw me, I was calling curses on myself, saying I never, ever knew that man. I'm not associated with him in any way. You got the wrong guy. It's because of fear. So in John 21, Jesus shows up again at the lake of Galilee. Peter and the other disciples are out fishing. And Jesus calls him again, exact same scenario at the exact same spot. And Jesus asks him three times if he loves him. 
and Peter, brokenhearted on the third time, he responds, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then he says in verse 18 of John 21, I tell you the truth. When you were a younger man, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now get the next thing that he said. Then he said to him, follow me. That's the same words that he had spoken three years earlier when he first met him. Follow me. So he's telling Peter, uh, you denied me and fled because you were afraid of dying in that way. When you're old, you're going to face that again. Follow me. So I have decided to follow Jesus. He showed him what death by which he would glorify God. It's death to self. That's the only kind of death God is looking for in you and for me. Death to self. Because when that happens, then we open ourselves to the life of God himself. And he's not talking at the end of our life. He's talking about today in our hearts now. Giving to him our future as well as our past. But not just the past, not just the future, but the present. It's a present day by day life that he's offering to us. I'm going to sing a song here in a minute. Um, Lead me to the cross. It's a good song. But I want us to think about it, and I want you to, and myself, I want us to think about this this morning and ask ourselves, do I really want to go? Will we truly follow Christ there? It's a place of death, but it's a kind of death that leads to resurrection and eternal life. So lead me to the cross. And Jesus says to us, if we're going to follow him, deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow him. And then he looks at each one of us, and he gives us the same challenge. It's an invitation. Jesus looks at you and me, and he says, follow me. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know how desperately we value our life. We see it in the book of Job. All a man has, he will give for his life. And Lord, it's our life that you're interested in. It's our life that you ask us to surrender to you. All of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our futures, all of our failures, all of our past, all of our sin, all of our victories, to lay them at your feet, Lord, and pray that your will would be done as you see it, not as we see it. Work within us today that which is pleasing to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.